folks. Let's find Psalm chapter 26, excuse me, the 26th Psalm. Psalm 26, we'll read the first three verses, and then we're going to, um, then we're going to, to study and begin a study in that. In Psalm 26, verse 1, uh, David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Uh, you know, one of the real delights of being able to work through the Psalms this way, and I know it's, it's already taken a long time, and it's just be blunt, it's going to take a really long time. There's 150 of them, and, and I'm doing multiple sermons per Psalm, so I may not live long enough to get finished, just to be honest with you, okay? I mean, it's going to take a long time to work our way through. We're in Psalm 26, and, and we might as well not hurry. One of the real delights in it, though, is that, um, is that we're so familiar with the Psalms. There are Psalms that some of us have not uh, studied recently. But the Psalms, and this is going to sound so much comparing lesser to greater. When In my classroom, when I teach Shakespeare, and my kids have never heard of him, hardly ever heard of Shakespeare. Hard to imagine in this world. But they don't. They, don't, they really don't know things like that anymore. It's so strange because when you start to open their eyes about it, they realize they've heard terms that are coined by Shakespeare in their regular life all the time. He's so influential that even though they may not have ever read him, they'd actually read so much of him. So much lesser that is, so much greater the Holy Scriptures. The Psalms are so influential and so plugged specifically into the Christian experience. The fact that we may not have studied them recently doesn't mean that they're not referred to constantly in the Christian life. This is one of those. One of those passages, specifically passage 1, vindicate me, or excuse me, verse 1, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked to my integrity and I have trusted the Lord without wavering. That terminology, vindicate me, O Lord, courses throughout a significant portion of the Bible. And we need to, to, we need to deal with that. And we'll take some time today in the first part of, of, of our study through Psalm 26 and deal with specifically that issue. You know, the words are, are, are well known. They're ground literally into our hearts. To study them is to examine our collective Christian experience. When we study the Psalms, we, in many ways we study that part of the Scriptures that are most familiar to us. That define who we are as a people. And look, we're going to apply hermeneutical skills to each of these psalms. We're not going to just prance through them. We're, going to, we're really studying them. And there are times in which God leads us in directions through the psalms that we didn't really expect from that psalm. And, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad for how long it took us to go through Psalm 23. Because if any psalm is so familiar that it's lost um, the power it should have in our lives, it's that psalm. Anything we can quote we are very tempted to dishonor in many ways. But we took our time through Psalm 23, and I believe it was, it, was, it was beneficial to all of us. We're not trying to seek here to discover some new interpretation of ancient truth. We're not, it's not really our, what we're supposed to do. Uh, the reality is we want to understand more deeply what the church has always known about the model for worship that's given in the Scriptures. 
and for that theological impact that these texts have on our lives. We don't, we're not looking for something new. We want to learn something old. We want to learn what the church has always known about these passages. They've all what the church has always known. I want, to, I want to believe what the church believed at Pentecost. About the Psalms and about the prophets. I want to believe what the church has always believed. Because when we believe what the church has really, I mean really always believed. Not in our lifetime, but in the lifetime of the church. When we believe what the church has always believed, we're going to be on firm footing. We're going to be on firm footing. Now look, Psalm 26, I'll read it again. begins with the words, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. The word that David uses in Hebrews, in, 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 the, in the, uh, the Hebrew language, is shafat, which means to govern or to judge. Now, right away, as we just look to my sparse understanding of Hebrew, we now have an interpretation and an understanding that the church is known as long as they spoke Hebrew and that they've understood. And that is that David is literally asking for God to do what? To, ju- to do two things. To judge him. To judge him. And to bring the essential governance of God to his life. Those are, those are incredible ideas. First and foremost, how many people in this room, honestly say that we ask God to judge us. What do we want? We want mercy. We don't want God. We're terrified of God's judgment. We're terrified of standing before God in any way, shape, or form. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our Christian walk. We don't trust anything about ourselves. We are relying strictly on mercy. That's not a necessarily negative perspective. But at the same time, David says this because he has specific reasons why he desires for God to look at him and judge him. Now, let's take it for what it's worth. If I want God to judge me, then I can want God to judge me for two reasons. One is revealed in the English translation of this verse, to vindicate me. I want God to say that I'm okay, that I'm right. I can also desire to have God judge me. The very same way I could come to one of you with a sermon for next Sunday. He said, read this for me. Why don't I want you to read it? Let me find any mistakes. Find any errors. Everything from typos to, to major theological, theological quandaries that can come out when you're doing things in a hurry. You think it through. And you need fresh eyes to look at it. I can want God to judge me Because I want God to look at me and tell me if I am really failing Him. God, right now, look at my life. Judge my life so that I know if I'm on the wrong foot. If I know that I'm on the wrong path. Show me, God. Don't fear that. It is exactly the same motivation that led Paul to say that we should examine ourselves. To see if we're in the faith. Unless, of course, we fail the test. That believers in Christ, bathed in the blood that... That, that washes away our sins, do not fear the judgment of God, but crave the judgment of God, because with it comes the second half of that definition of Shaphat, the governance of God. That when God judges me, He controls me. He rules me as I want Him to. I don't want to do this by myself. I was lost doing it by myself. I came to Christ looking for the blood, not for fire insurance. Because no offense, even as a young man... Hell felt still a long way away. I came to God 
under the blood, desiring salvation for one reason, because I knew I couldn't live that way anymore. I didn't want to live it my way. I wanted God to have governance over me. Control. Control over me. And that comes from calling to Him in prayer. Shafat me. Govern me. Judge me. Show me where I'm lacking. Show me where I need to change. Show me those things I need to repent of. Um, simply put, the, the request from, from David is that God would ascertain the merits of his life, would address his strengths and weaknesses, and issue a ruling in his favor. The world desires, listen, the world desires a measure of this kind of indication. Measure of it. An example, it's kind of a quip, a smart remark. Simply put, by an aphorist, it's his job to invent smart remarks. That's what an aphorism is. A pithy statement that kind of solves your problems. It's the kind of things go with greeting cards. Mason Cooley, the, the aphorist, said this, Psychology keeps trying to vindicate human nature. History keeps undermining the effort. Now, that, that's the truth. What does humanity want? To be told we are right. Desperately, humanity desires through countless schemes to arrange its world in such a way that only the opinions and decisions of men matter. We, I talk to my kids today. Simply put, I had to tell them, guys, the problem with people is we want to be our own God. We don't want anyone above us. We don't want ethics and morality from on high. We want to be our own judges. We want to decide for ourselves what is right. And we will always vindicate ourselves and always decide, decide in our own favor. What men want is the governance of men. What men need is the governance of God. What we want is our way. What we need is His way. Humanity wants it their way. It's the great intellectual quest of modern religion to either define and embrace a God that approves of everything, a God that has no standards whatsoever, the God of the 21st century. Live any way you want to, do what you want to do. God doesn't care. He just loves you the way you are. And He never demands that anyone change. Even if their path is, is, is disastrous, destructive, it's a path of death. That God approves of every path. Or to eradicate the true God of moral and ethical teaching through some kind of atheistic banishment. This God's not, not good enough for us, and therefore we'll have none. We know there's one. We won't have him because we can't live with his pronouncement. As a counterpoint to this, David defines for us the evidence that would lead to his exoneration and vindication before the tribunal of the living God. Two actions, two, are at the core of David's case. We'll look at one specifically today. And they're the spine of our authentic and dynamic walk for the Lord. These two things, specifically that David, said, that David talks about in verse 1, are so important. They are integral to what we are trying to do in Christ under the blood. Walking in, in integrity and trusting without fail. I think the two things we have the hardest time doing. We have, time, we have a hard time with integrity. And we have a terrible time with trust. And so David talks about those. That's how David is to be judged. Let's look at integrity first. Look, the book of Proverbs defines that term integrity. It's translated in English integrity. It's tome in the Hebrew, it means completeness. 
for us within the context of the scriptures. Being complete. It's another one of those ideas of maturity. Of being grown up and fully formed. People who have integrity are people who have come to some measure of completeness in the Lord. They have some measure of maturity in the Lord. Four aspects of biblical integrity stand out in Solomon's writings. First, Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks secretly, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Now Solomon's going to use that term crooked several times when he talks about integrity. So literally, what Solomon is going to do here is divine, is kind of defined for us by saying that the man of integrity walks a straight path. And the man without integrity walks a crooked path. So, so we need to keep that image and we're going to do some, take some time to kind of flesh it out. The only way to walk in a way that fosters security for my life and yours, that enriches my existence and ensures the blessings and the provision of God for my family and me, is to walk with completeness in biblical integrity. The only way this works out, the way I'm so desperate for it to work out, I mean, I don't know how you guys... This is probably a, a larger subject than just the Bible study on Wednesday night. I, I don't know exactly how you pray or what you pray for. But one of those things that my family has prayed for for a very long time is provision. We pray for God to meet our needs. Now, some of you may not have ever been in a position in your life where you felt the pressure to have God meet your needs. You may not have ever been short before. But I think some of you in this room have probably literally been at that point when you're praying this prayer for provision and thought, if God doesn't provide, we, we go under. If God doesn't provide, we don't eat next week. Some of us have experienced that. And so provision has been one of those things that I've prayed for for decades and decades of my marriage and of my time as a father. God just meet our needs. Now, uh, brothers and sisters, I've always tried to have the discipline to allow God to define provision and not have Tony define provision. Because there's a difficulty there when I start defining provision. Because what I think I need, I've got to have, and what God knows I need and I've got to have are not the same thing. Sometimes I'll think, brother, I need something because it will keep me from being embarrassed. Because one of those things I think all of us probably fear is humiliation, right? Is being embarrassed because of something, because of a need. And God has tended to provide for me in ways that cause me to swallow huge gulps of my own pride. Like choking on it, you know what I mean? And having to smile and be... Be, 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 be not generous, be gentle about it. Because God hates my pride. And God uses my prayers of provision to war against my pride. He wants me to swallow all of it. And I tend to nibble. Okay? I tend to take little bites. And God wants me to take it all. But provision is one of those. And so for me, when it says this, walks in security, my brain immediately goes to that idea. Of the safety of my family, the provision for my family, for, for daily bread. How do I meet all these needs that a family brings with it? And that I want that so desperately. So what I've got to do right now, me understanding what God says back to my heart, man, I've got I to gotta work on walking in integrity because God securely maintains those people who walk in integrity. It's a requirement. 
God won't bless me if I'm crooked. But God will bless me if I'm straight. Even if straight means I take a beating. Even if straight means I'm stumbling. He will bless me there. The only way to walk in a way that fosters security for my life that enriches my existence and ensures blessings. That's what we're talking about. To strive for and to seek maturity is the opposite of walking in a crooked way. Because a crooked way is an undisciplined way. It's a self-centered way. and It's a self-aggrandizing fashion that attempts to trick our way through life instead of embracing the Word of God for the glory of God. Now, I think that's what I was for so long guilty of. I'm describing Tony. Which was, it wasn't that I didn't love the Lord. It wasn't that I didn't want to serve Him. Is that I thought somehow I could define elements of my service. No offense, guys. i got more peace teaching school than I have in decades. Even though I'm exhausted. And it, and it, and it feels like sometimes it hurts my ministry. Do you know why? Because I feel God's hand on it. I feel that God now has overtaken my provision. And He's got me doing what He wants me to do. And then for a long time I just simply wouldn't listen. I thought I knew better than him because it was uncomfortable. Then once again, back to the pride point. What's God want me doing? Choking on that pride. Much as I can get down. Why I got to go back? Why I got to be the oldest? Why am I going to be... Why are people way younger than me going to be fishing when I'm still teaching? Why? Because God wants me there. That's what He wants me to do. And I refuse to hear... And he's made it clear. And now I, I realize. Now I realize the, the, the joy. That's sometimes a painful joy. But it's joy nonetheless. Too many believers are living with a kind of false assurance. That does not stem from a transformed life. But from the insanely perverted words of pseudo-religion. That imply a man or a woman can be born again. And live any way they choose. I, I'm going to take my case and I'm going to extend that as far as I can. The reality is there are tons of people in the church that believe that they can have Christ and the world at the same time. Believe they can have salvation and live their life however they want to. They can think what they want to think and they can do what they want to do. There is no such nonsense found within the pages of Scripture. Everything that speaks to that says that we have made every emotion, every thought, every feeling a slave to God and a slave to His righteousness. But there are people walking around Baptist churches just like this who believe once saved, always saved means that, that, that once saved, always saved means live the way you want to. Do what you want to do with your life. And it is simple nonsense. And it holds no theological water whatsoever. Zero. Those crooked ways will always be found out. As our Lord says of enemies in Matthew 10 verse 26, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. There are lots of people in the world who feel like they are fooling everyone, including themselves. And, and Christ clearly says, nobody is fooled. Nobody. The wicked cannot hide their rotten actions and devious hearts forever. At the same time, Paul tells us that good works will be known too. In 1 Timothy 5.25. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Walking in integrity will be, will be the real conspicuousness that draws the right attention to men and women. So when we walk in integrity, we don't have to blow a horn. 
We don't have to raise a flag. We don't have to shout about what God is doing through us. What Paul clearly tells Timothy is, when you're doing what God commands, when you're doing the good works that come with with the new heart and the new life in Christ Jesus, when that happens, it cannot be hidden. The same way the wicked will be found out, so will those who are serving God be found out. You don't have to advertise it. God advertises it. You don't have to tell anybody. God will tell. What we have to do is be faithful. And then we let let the publicity come from the one who controls the hearts and minds of men. Also, integrity is not a matter of financial blessing, but an affront to the human idea of admiring the rich at the expense of the poor. Now that seems like a weird thing to say in the church, but let's just be blunt. We are in a nation that in some strange way looks up to rich people. As if rich people are better than us. Look, folks, we fled England to come here for equality. So we wouldn't have to think there's these people above us that are better than us. And we've created them here not out of some idea of breeding or or inheritance or some relationship to the land as in England. We've done it strictly here out of money. If you've got enough money, people will look up to you. And here's the reality. The Bible is very clear. Riches neither affirm nor degrade the reputation of a person. In fact, let's let's read what what Solomon says. For Solomon, one of the richest men to ever live, riches were deception and an obstacle obstacle to Christian living. Uh, The king wrote in Proverbs 28.6, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. It's better to be poor and have integrity than rich and let it make you crooked. It's better to be poor. Now, once again, we don't want to hear that because I'll tell you why. I admit, I'm probably tender toward that also. Because I don't associate poor with integrity and rich with crookedness to just having money. I go back to the first point. I tend to associate it with provision. Poor and struggling. Some people in this room know what it's like struggle, right? Struggle. And we're afraid to struggle. I'm afraid to struggle. I think it brings out the best in the Christian experience. I'll be honest with you. I think when you're struggling financially, you're struggling in terms of provision, God can make you closer to Him than at any other time in your life. You are more focused on Him than you've ever been in your life when you're really praying hard over matters of provision. There's nothing that will sharpen you except for life and death. There will nothing that will sharpen your attention on Christ more than desperately than being desperate about provision. But, but we still fear it. We still fear not having enough. It's like somebody asked me one time, one of my kids said years and years ago. I said, they said, what, what are you most afraid of? I remember in class, I said, I said, buddy, I'm the most afraid of, of hungry cries for my children and having nothing to give them. I'm, I'm more terrified of that than anything else. Death is not really a problem. That I'm afraid of. Because their parents on this earth right now, some who love the Lord, whose, whose children will cry hungry cries and have nothing. It doesn't mean that God does not provide. It means that even those hungry cries are part of God's plan. Even those hungry cries are part of what God will use to strengthen the kingdom. But I still fear it, and I think we all do. We know that the writer's convinced that it's better to be 
poor and have integrity than to be rich and have a, a life that's crooked, the symbol of sin and, and self-deception. For Solomon, he had to realize how easily the hearts of men and women are polluted and corrupted by riches. While heaven is the place of ultimate riches, as the Lord Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6.20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The desire for riches is unhealthy and strikes at the very core of who we are as humans. Here's the problem with riches is that nothing can pollute us worse than riches can. Christ tells us, Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's very, very clear about that. We can in an unnatural and sinful way, love riches. We can love money in a way. And here's there's one of those things now. And I've talked to a lot of people. I think a lot of people are scared of money in this world. A lot of people are very cautious about it. Who have struggled and they never want to again. And so they will, they will Dave Ramsey this up and they will manage it and manage it and manage it. But I'll be honest with you now. I think there's a very fine line between trying to manage it to death in a Christian way and falling over into caring about it too much, into loving it. And I think like everything else with the human heart, we can start to feel things that are an offense to God and we're feeling those things before we realize we are doing it. Before we realize, Once again, it would be better to have none. It would be better to have none than risk. In the very same way, if I am allured by my sight, pluck out my very eyes. Because it's better to be blind than have my heart polluted. It's better to be blind. When the hearts of men and women become focused on what they have or earn or need, they drift from the necessity of devotion to Christ and His will. We become too caught up in money, too caught up in it. We stop focusing on Jesus and we start focusing on, on, on provision. On doing it ourselves. Away from the purity of the word of God. And the desire to please the one who sacrificed all for us. Look, as born again believers in Christ for eternal salvation. We need for hearts to remain completely dedicated to our Savior. And our commitment on display for the world to see. We can't afford to be corrupted. Because we are part of what the world is seeing. We are God's advertisement for the kingdom. That is the church. That is you and I. Not buildings, not programs, not names, not books, not pamphlets, not even, not even uh, electronic media. Literally God's people. God's people. And don't act for a second like when you started coming to a church that you, you did not look at God's people first. You did. You looked at God's people. I know you concentrated on what was preached. I know you. I know the pulpit was essential, but you looked at God's people. You looked at God's people. You did because we should. We are the we are the valid, we are the validation of, of of the authority of this pulpit. When we believe as we should and commit as Christ demands, even our families are blessed by the integrity of mom and dad. As Solomon writes in Proverbs 20, verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity blessed are his children after him. Not riches or property, but a legacy of Christian integrity is the greatest blessing that any parent has to offer his or her children. It's one of the things we've talked about. And this is one of the things I, 
I know, I know I bring these things in. and I bring them in often. But as I get older, I, I see the clarity or the truth of the more. I am more concerned right now about what my children will think after I am dead than I was 20 years ago. Because I'd be honest with you. I couldn't... I can't leave them enough money that it will change their lives. I just can't. I can't. I can't leave them enough property that somehow it will make their lives harder or easier. It may make it harder a little bit. All we've written, and most of us are in exactly the same shape. All you can leave your children is a name of integrity or, or a crooked name. That's all we can leave them. The legacy that we have to give, the blessing that we have to give is in that name. Will they be blessed by it or not? Now finally, as Christian integrity guides the actions of men and women of the cross, it leads the church to a place of safety. Simultaneously, the deception and wicked, underhanded dealings of the Bogod or the treacherous, that's the Hebrew word, Bogod, leads them only into dire troubles and destructive consequences. So at the end of this, one path, straight path, leads to Christ. It leads to eternity. It leads to heaven. And that crooked path leads only one place to judgment. As Solomon writes in Proverbs 11, verse 3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. That crooked path leads only to destruction. Simply stated, the Lord will not tolerate the wicked. And He is always faithful to deliver justice to those who are false and sinful. And we tend to tell kind of a half-truth there. We concentrate so much in, in our presentation of the gospel on the mercy of God extended to men. And we, we oftentimes don't emphasize the fact that at some point God judges. Mercy is not forever. Judgment comes. God is a God defined by His faithfulness. And an aspect of His faithfulness is the fact that He is a God of justice. He is faithful to the law He has created. And He will judge based upon it. The sins that we use to distract and the sins that we use to entice and the sins that corrupt us, God will judge those very sins. It is only by His great mercy that any of us has escaped. In no way is the Lord foolishly taken in by the schemes of the wicked. As surely as the rain will fall in its season, the sin of the wicked will be punished in the ultimate act of divine justice, a sinner's hell. There is no biblical doubt about this. When the season of mercy has elapsed, the season of justice will reign. When God's interaction with His people has been based upon, with the world has been based upon mercy, mercy earned on Calvary, when that is elapsed, then justice will roll in. What must occur is that the wicked see the error of their ways, the futility of their schemes, that they are drawn by God to repentance. Solomon insists on this in Proverbs 28, verse 13, when he writes, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. How do we find mercy? Confess our sins. Forsake those sins. The very definition of repentance. Confess and forsake. We will obtain mercy. At the heart of New Testament salvation is the blood of Christ shed on Calvary. 
It's the action of repentance gifted by God. Earned by Christ, who Peter says in Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. Killed by hanging on a tree. Cursed. As anyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed. Cursed for who? Cursed for us. For all who've sinned and broken the heart of God. Christ has groaned and Christ has died and Christ atoned. Then this mercy given through grace to the church, the heavenly Israel, as Peter explains about Jesus in Acts 5.31, God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He is drawing a particular people to Himself through mercy. Christ died so that we can repent. By the power and grace of God and not of any substantial human work. The heart of of, of biblical integrity practiced by the church is the repentance that that is an ongoing work in our lives. What God starts finishes at our death. What God begins on our knees at the foot of the cross at Calvary continues until we die. And that is repentance. As the Lord demonstrates in the book of Revelation, Revelation 2.5. But He says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Ephesian church had abandoned their first love and our Lord called all their works into question. They were a good church. They were doing everything on the outside the right way. But God doesn't judge the outside. He pierces all the way to the heart. And he knew that they were doing all the right things, but their heart was wrong. For that reason, repentance required and demanded of a church that looked healthy on the outside, but was on a ruinous course on the inside. I think there's something that we have to look at today as a church. Are we on a destructive course because of our hearts? What's the response of the church? Repentance for the Ephesian church was a healing opportunity for the body of Christ. And for us right now, repentance is a healing opportunity for the body of Christ. As believers, our call is simple and stated best by Jesus in Matthew 3.8. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That we have repented and the action of repentance now bears fruit. As believers, we're to repent and keep examining and repenting so that our faith is durable and our lives reflect the glory of God and the accomplishments of Christ on the cross. And they do not reflect the failures of our personalities or the limits of our wicked culture. That we're a new culture, a particular people set apart for the glory of God. And He does that through us by way of repentance. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity to come and to preach Your Word, and I pray that I've done it rightly. I thank You, Father God, for, for, the, for the, every opportunity. But more than everything, Father God, I thank You, Lord, for the gift of Christ, whose precious blood saves us from our sins. I ask You, please, God, to continue to bless us, to help us, and to give us strength and courage, Father God. We need You today, Father God, but bless us, God, that we can seek You, that, we can ex- that You will examine our hearts, judge us, Father God, hold us to the standard, and govern us, rule over us. That's what we so desperately need, and we ask You now, Please, God, to do that for us. Hold us accountable, God, as a people, so we can shine forth like the light you intend for us to shine like. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen.